Good morning. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 12 for our scripture reading this morning. You can also follow along on the screen behind me. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this week is traditionally considered Holy Week. Holy Week, I personally think most weeks are, I mean, Holy Week is a Holy Week, a week is a week is a week. Every day is holy when you begin it and end it with the Lord, isn't it? But this is a special season because we look at some very special events that, uh, that in Jewish tradition and on into Christian tradition represent the ushering in of Messiah. There's not a more exciting thing for me personally in my, uh, in my own study of the Bible than to look at Old Testament scriptures that are so clearly and obviously fulfilled in Jesus. And so we're going to do that this morning. We're going to take a look at some of these things. We're not going to touch the, uh, the, the, uh, the resurrection. That's going to be Tom's duty next week on Easter Sunday. So we're looking forward to that sermon, a whole different kind of sermon. But this morning, uh, I did have that John chapter, uh, I forget what the chapter was, the, the reading that we had this morning about, uh, about the triumphal entry. Um, there are four, actually several, every gospel has that in it, and I picked that one because we're going to use the Luke one as I'm preaching through it. So I wanted to hear both of those. They're all very similar um, as we go through that. But um, as celebrations go, really this, uh, this week's celebrations uh, really are special, aren't they? We start out today, traditionally called Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry where Jesus enters the city, uh, proclaiming himself, finally, the Messiah. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. We have a lot of different events that we're going to talk about this morning, happening at the temple, conflicts, lots of things happening, ending up on what we call Passover evening, the Lord's Supper. Some call it in Christian circles, Monday, Thursday, simply means uh, new commandment, mandatum noventum. I think that's the Latin term for that. But basically, it's just a new commandment because that's where Jesus, after all, washed the feet of his disciples. And he demonstrated what a true king was like, a true servant leader by washing his disciples' feet. And then we have, of course, the crucifixion that happened on Good Friday and uh, Easter resurrection on Sunday. But uh, these events really are, are, are fascinating and they're faith-inspiring when we look at their New Testament 
and their Old Testament context and how they're fulfilled in Jesus. So today, interestingly, we have another celebration, don't we? This is today, we're choosing to celebrate our 10-year anniversary at CRC uh, as, uh, as, as a church. It's a very exciting time for us. We get to take stock of where we've been, look at what we've, where we've been, celebrate where we've been, and then look at where we want to go into the future. So I'm hoping that as we, as we approach these events, this is the core message of who we are, what we're going to talk about today. This is the core of the gospel. And so I'm hoping that we can take stock and look at this and see, once again, fresh, anew, what our role here is, personally and as a church, in the kingdom of God. So let's pray together as we, uh, as we tackle this enormous challenge this morning, and then we'll launch right into it, if you don't mind. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity today to gather in your name and proclaim Jesus, proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And Lord, we, we, we thank you that you have demonstrated your grace in us, lavished your love on us while we were yet sinners, you died for us. So Lord, it's with that humility of not having earned any of this that we come to you this morning and asking you, Holy Spirit, to teach us and lead us in all wisdom as we open up your word. May the words of our mouth, my mouth this morning, ours as we come and go, and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight to stay. Oh, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Last week, uh, I got a text from my, from my sister. Uh, my sister lives in the colony, but she has a nephew. I mean, she has a son who is my nephew who lives actually in Abilene, Texas, and they have two beautiful children, the youngest of which is four years old, little Owen. And uh, he had just gotten back last week. They were beginning to, you know, they've been studying uh, Bible stories at Pioneer Drive Baptist Church where they attend. And, uh, and Owen comes back with an interesting story uh, of what they studied in Sunday school. Basically, she said, uh, he said, we were talking about Jesus. He said, Jesus was, you know, walking around with this guy, Peter. And this guy, Peter, gets out of the boat and he walks on the water. And then he, then he, then he rips Jesus' eyes off. And then he sinks. Well, it seems that Owen got his words just a little bit mixed up. Uh, so instead of Peter took his eyes off Jesus, he understood it as Peter took Jesus' eyes off. So it's, it's funny how sometimes we can misunderstand, misinterpret what God is trying to say. And that's one of the reasons why I think these festivals and feasts in Jewish lore, in, in, in where God has establish these feasts for us to clearly identify what it is that he's trying to do. And so it's hard to, 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 to make a mistake, isn't it? Well, maybe not. Maybe not. Because many have. Time and time again, the hardness of the hearts of the Jewish people in Jesus' time misread and misinterpreted who he was. They just plain missed it. Numerous prophetic references, clear prophetic references, they missed it. And so as we dive into this, this sequence of three different passages here, we'll, we'll see how in, in varying degrees they missed it again. They missed it again. But fortunately, God's grace is big. 
and He extended that to us, and He has chosen us, and we have been made to understand these things, and we are part of His church, and we hope and pray for the time when Israel will yet come to belief in their Messiah. So let's take a look at uh, Luke chapter 19. If you'll turn there with you, this is that triumphal entry passage that we looked at in John uh, chapter 12 a while ago. Um, this, as I said earlier, is in all four of the Gospels, this, this story of Jesus entering Jerusalem. So let's just start right in here, Luke 19, starting in verse 35. So Luke writes, they brought it, the colt, to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus replied, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Here we have Jesus for the first time in his ministry, publicly, unashamedly, he's never ashamed, but without any doubt, introducing himself, coming into Jerusalem as Israel's Messiah. People are throwing down the olive branches or the, the different branches of the trees, cloaks on the ground. He's riding on the colt. And they're praising him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, which means save or save us. This, uh, interestingly, this, this place where Jesus came in is probably a gate that used to be called the Shushan Gate. It's no longer there. It was destroyed, of course, by, by, uh, by the Romans in 70 AD when they leveled everything. But in its place... Above it, scholars believe, archaeologists believe that there is a, a place that's called the Golden Gate. And if you've been to Jerusalem and you're standing on the Temple Mount and looking over east onto the Kidron Valley, up onto the next hill, which is the Mount of Olives, which is where Jesus came from the Mount of Olives, just as Scripture prophesied, came through that area down on the Kidron Valley, and then he entered into that east gate. It's that east gate. There are eight gates around the city of Jerusalem, but they believe this one, because of its proximity to the temple, is where he came in. Interestingly, though, this golden gate, they call it, Christians call it that, the Muslims call it the gate of mercy, but uh, it was actually rebuilt after the Romans destroyed it by, you know, by sometime in the 6th, 6th century, uh, just the gate portion, not the temple, of course, and... Um, and you've got uh, Muslims not really liking that very much. So the Muslims actually didn't, they believed that Jesus actually was, they believed that Jesus was who he said he was to a degree, to a degree. When he comes into the city of Jerusalem, they believe that he made that triumphal entry. He entered as, as the Jewish Messiah. The Muslims won't, uh, they, they, they don't believe that he is divine. They don't believe that he's the son of God, but they have a lot of interestingly characteristics that they believe about Jesus that the Jewish people, his own people, don't. But what happened was the, Jew, the, the Muslims didn't want that gate to be entered again, so they 
basically sealed it up. They stoned it over. Now, it's been opened up a couple of times in history, but I think in the last time it was around the 12th century, 13th century. But that, that gate remains sealed to this day. It's, it's, it's there. And there is, in fact, right in front of it, a Muslim cemetery. And this is, this, is a, this is a stab against not Christians, but against the Jewish folks, because they believe that the Jewish Messiah will come of a priestly caste, and the priests, of course, in the Jewish religion cannot go near the dead bodies, so they set up a cemetery right there, a Muslim cemetery, right in front of that gate. Of course, we know that you know, when, when the Lord comes back, there's not anything that's going to keep him from coming where he wants to come. But I thought that was very interesting that they believe that, and they, they hold that gate to be something special, and they seal it for that reason. It's a stab against the Jews. It's a poke against them. So what we're looking at in the Gospels is really a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9. So take your Bibles and take, take a look at chapter 9 in Zechariah verses 9 and 10. And let's take a look at that passage very quickly. Zechariah reads, or he, he writes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And of course, Jesus is fulfilling that prophecy to the T as he's coming in. So the context of this prophecy by Zechariah is that, uh, is that Israel is being restored after, after Babylonian captivity. They're coming back into the land. Ezra is documenting where Cyrus the Great actually allowed the Jews to come back home, back to their places. And Zechariah, of course, is, is prophesying during about a 40, 50-year period during this time. And his message is one of hope to the Jewish people as they come back into their land. And he has a lot to say about the Messiah. In fact, Zechariah chapters 9 through 14 contain perhaps some of the most specific and clear messianic prophecies in the entire Hebrew scriptures. Zechariah 9 through 14, specific things that the prophet predicted, prophesied that came true exactly as he said. The coming of Zion's messianic king, chapter 9. Then he goes into a period of chapter 11, 12, 13 in there, where he talks about Israel's rejection of that messianic servant king. You see shades of servanthood coming into that messianic king, which the Jews unequivocally rejected when it came to Jesus. Then you have ultimately in chapter 14, the repentance and conversion and, and the sorrow of Israel for the one that they have slain, coming back to him in repentance and asking forgiveness from the Father for doing that, the great restoration of Israel. Your king comes to you, is what he's saying here in Zechariah 9. Your king, your king, Israel, your king is coming to you from the Davidic line, not Nebuchadnezzar, 
Not Cyrus, not some other king that's king where you were taken off to captivity, but your king is coming to you. Your king comes to you righteous. Righteous. He is the only righteous one. In contrast, let's look at uh, you know, Psalm 53 where it says, God looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Everyone has turned away. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Righteousness does not exist in man. Your king comes to you having salvation, or you could, you could interpret that Hebrew phrase, showing himself as Savior. As Jesus comes in, showing himself as the Savior of Israel, thus the shout and the cry, Hosanna, Hosanna. This is kind of the right, again, this is the great reveal, the great reveal of Jesus presenting himself as Messiah. Also, your king comes to you gentle and humble as we saw Jesus coming in, riding on a donkey. Not a war horse, a donkey. Not a war horse yet. That's coming yet. To get a glimpse of that, you have to look at Revelation chapter 19, where John, the apostle on Patmos, writes, I saw in heaven standing open, and there was before, and there before me was a white horse, I'm sorry, was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire. His, uh, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the Word of God. I love that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. His name is the Word of God. The armors of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And his robe and on his thigh, he has his name written, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Very different picture, isn't it, than what we have in Zechariah 9. So, as we mentioned, Israel will repent. We don't know what that's going to look like. We don't know where or when. But Zechariah clearly depicts how Israel will repent. They will recognize King Jesus as the Redeemer they had missed, mourn bitterly and deeply for Him and beg forgiveness, and have the grace of God poured out on them in forgiveness and restoration. Incredibly so. Zechariah 12, 10 reads, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. This is Zechariah, hundreds of years before Jesus. They will look on me, uh, look upon him, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourning for an only child. So we have a new kingdom coming with Jesus establishing it, but this kingdom is going to be a kingdom of peace, of peace. Verse 10 clearly 
shows that, that it is a peaceful kingdom. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He, Messiah, will proclaim peace to the nations. This very scene is found also in a little bit more familiar verse to us in Isaiah chapter 9, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Interestingly, in the, at the United Nations in New York, uh, it's not at the United Nations, but it's what they call the Isaiah Wall across the street from the United Nations. There's a wall that now has inscribed a very familiar verse as well. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Again, Isaiah chapter 2. It'll be a whole worldwide kingdom, the whole world. His kingdom obviously will stretch to the whole world. At that time, his sovereignty known by us right now by faith, through our faith in him, we know because we know him and because we have faith in Him, because He has granted us that gift of faith that He is sovereign. We know that, His people, but the world will know it. After a very, very busy, volatile, and confrontational week that Jesus had, you know, then uh, he, 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 it, it, he had a lot of conflict that week, and, and it's, it's going to be nice for the world to know, finally, who really is in control. The Lord's Supper is the next step that we want to look at, and, and we have this on Thursday, of course, of the week, at Monday, Thursday, if you will. It's also found in four of the Gospels, Matthew 24, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 13. So I'm going to read the Luke 22 version, starting in verse 14, if you want to turn there. I think it's in your programs there, your, your, your outlines. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, "This, take this and divide it among you, for I tell you again, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. This is the one thing out of these three things that we're discussing this morning that we here at CRC honor every week, don't we? we? We live out the Lord's Supper, this ordinance. It's a very visible depiction, again, like the feasts, like the festivals, like all of the things that God gives us as training tools. This is a very visible depic depiction of what it is that Jesus has done. For us. So Jesus is gathering them in the upper room. 
which he has chosen, having loved and poured into these guys day and night, and not just guys, there were women there too, the women around him, but the disciples particularly, for three years, now on the threshold of a new age that we're going to be seeing as a result of the events that are going to be happening in the next two or three days, Jesus says that he has eagerly desired to eat this Passover with his disciples. Now, what is this Passover? What is Passover? Well, the Passover also is, of course, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That was augmented. Passover was augmented by Moses just a little bit later. Um, I won't go into the details on, on how that happened, but it's just an augmentation of basically of the Passover. And the Passover, of course, we all know, we've seen Cecil B. DeMille's uh, uh, version of the Ten Commandments. Has everybody seen that, or am I just aging myself again? Nobody has seen that except me. I, oh, okay, a few old people like me. Thank you. But no, not really. But it's, it's one of those things that, that we're pretty familiar with. We think we are, at least. Moses had gone through all the plagues. The Egyptians were not letting the people go. Pharaoh's heart was hardened to accomplish God's purposes, as we see clearly in Romans. Paul spells that out for us. We learn a lot by that, don't we? That God uses people to accomplish His purposes when they're not doing good things necessarily. But the Passover was, was that meal that, that probably detected more than anything up till that time what, and, and, and one of the things that, that shows us most clearly what this salvation of the Lamb of God is. The Lamb is slain. The blood of the Lamb is put over the doorposts, top and sides. The angel of death or the angel of judgment comes. Has anyone inside given any kind of work or indication that they've done something good to deserve being passed over? Not at all. The angel sees one thing and one thing alone. The blood of Christ. And that's why it is exactly with us. Only that blood gives us that right standing with God. So it's interesting. Um, I was in Israel. We were, we, we, we were in Israel for a couple of years, actually. We visited several times, but, but uh, whenever we'd have a, a high-level visit coming from Washington, D.C., we'd all kind of pack up our bags and go to Jerusalem because that's where all the festivities happen. That's where the Israeli government has its seat, not in Tel Aviv. And, um, and interestingly, in this particular visit, it was in the spring, March-ish, March time frame. And so what's happening in March? Passover. We're in this beautiful six-star hotel. I mean, incredible, incredible hotel, wonderful food, breakfasts out of the ears. I mean, it's just the most beautiful and delicious pastries I've ever had in my life until seven days before Passover. And what do they do? Everything unleavened goes out of the hotel everything. And they have this crunchy, tasteless bread they call matzah bread. Incredible how they can go from this delicious pastry to that matzah bread. But that is in obedience to the Passover regulations. Removing yeast, not just in what you've cooked and what you serve, but actually removing it from the premises where you live. Let's read this 
version of the, of the Passover. Let's read the, the, the account of the Passover in Exodus 12, starting in verse 17. Celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for generations to come. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeasts from the evening of the 14th day till the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses. And I found firsthand how painful that can be for a bread lover like myself to not be able to have yeast for a week, for a whole week. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood of the basin and put some, on the blood, put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and on the sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses or strike you down. Passover. God, by his grace, looking only at the blood of the perfect, pure Passover lamb, passing by and not judging with death the occupants inside. Well, why was there no yeast? Let's just kind of touch on that real quickly. I think it's probably important to at least give that some kind of a treatment here. To the Jews, uh, this is the official story. It's interesting how when we, we did a, a Seder meal with a Jewish family that we knew, that one of my staff members in, uh, in Mexico, as a matter of fact, and it's interesting how that whole Seder experience for a practicing Jew becomes something completely different than what we would expect it to be. It's completely different than what a Messianic Jew would celebrate, referring to Christ and, and how he fits into all of this. But to the Jews uh, today, really it means that Israel had to depart Egypt in haste. And actually, this is in the scriptures too. This, Moses actually writes this down. No time to let the bread rise, according to Exodus 12, 39. No time at all. They had to leave immediately. So therefore, there's no yeast in the Passover celebration. They look upon it this way, that that's the reason. However, in rabbinical circles over the centuries, yeast has, like it has with us, become a representation of sin. Sin. A little bit of sin works through the whole dough. Works fast, doesn't it? Mark 8.15, Jesus says, be careful. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 and 8, get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you already are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity. And again, in Galatians, Paul writes, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. So, why seven days? It's a debate. But seven days, in Hebrew parlance, really is a number of perfection. 
In fact, the, uh, the Hebrew consonants that are used to spell, Hebrew, when they're spelling out their language, they usually don't have vowels, you're just doing the consonants, and they have these other little substitutes for vowels that you plug in there, but the Hebrew consonants for, for, uh, uh, for this, for, for seven, <laughs> I'm losing my mind here, <laughs> the Hebrew word for seven, the Hebrew consonants for seven, really is the same consonants for complete or full, the word complete or full. So why hyssop? Hyssop, it's an aromatic herb, mint type herb. Grows with a straight stalk and it's woody and it's got, you know, kind of a brushy end to it. It's perfect for putting things on, on a doorway, the blood. But there's an Old Testament symbolism in hyssop for cleansing as well. In Leviticus 15, you have it as a cleansing for a ritual cleansing for lepers in Leviticus 19. It's for those who come in contact with the dead. It just goes on and on for, 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 uh, for Moses sprinkling the blood of the covenant on the altar and the people, as, as you hear in Rome, I'm sorry, in, in Hebrews 9, chapter 19, the story in Exodus 24, when Moses is actually sprinkling the blood of the covenant on the people and on the altar, that is with hyssop. He's using hyssop to do that. And my favorite is David in Psalm 51. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Bottom line is this hyssop and all of this, they're visuals. They're visuals in themselves. You know, I, I, I don't know that there's any real significance other than they are symbols of what is happening spiritually, what has taken place, what is taking place. Now, my favorite, of course, all of our favorite is the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Spotless lamb has to be without blemish. Lambs were very high valued, worth a lot of money, but this one represented someone without sin, spotless. Isaiah 53 Verse 7 says, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And John 1, 29, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John the Baptist, talking about Jesus. So let's move on to the Lord's Supper on this. As Jesus took the Passover meal with his disciples, this is what he was doing. He was celebrating this Jewish Passover meal on Thursday evening, and he was on the threshold of fulfilling the promise of God, salvation for Israel, God's blessing to the nations. At last, man's relationship that was broken by Adam will be restored by Jesus, the true Adam. This kind of reminds me a little bit too of, and I think it should, we get references throughout Scripture of the great wedding feast that's going to happen when Jesus returns. Revelation, actually, let's go to Isaiah first. Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 8 says, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. The sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. 
The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of His people from all the earth. And then in Revelation chapter 19, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. That's going to be an exciting time. I cannot wait. I don't know about you guys, but that's something that sometimes at night I'll, I'll, I'll wake up and I'll, I'll think about what's that going to look like? I mean, what's that going to look like? I mean, and, and am awed by the fact that I'm invited. I don't deserve to be invited to that. What a time we're going to have with Jesus when the time comes for our restoration. Finally, the event of the crucifixion is bearing right down on us at this point. Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, John 19, all of these give a depiction of what the crucifixion is like. I'm not going to read that whole account for you. I had it down in Matthew. I like Matthew's account. I like them all, actually, but Matthew's I felt like was one that I don't read as much as some of the others. So I'll encourage you to, to read that on your own as we get closer to Resurrection Sunday. But I will make reference to one of my favorite passages of Scripture that refers to Jesus in this role of suffering servant, and that's in Isaiah 53, possibly the greatest prophetic portrait in all the Old Testament in graphic detail describing the sacrificial purpose of Messiah. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Back to the none of us are righteous motif. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The iniquity of us all. The thing, of course, that I think of mostly referring to this in an Old Testament counterpart is Abraham being asked to sacrifice Isaac on the altar. We find this in Genesis 22. Again, I'm not going to read this entire passage for us. We're short on time. I encourage you to read that. But let me read parts of it, though. It says, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. That's after he got there. It's at a place called Mount Moriah, which interestingly, uh, by tradition, and a lot of traditions, Jewish tradition, a lot of Christian traditions, Mount Moriah is the Temple Mount. There's no concrete, conclusive evidence that that's the case, but there's some pretty strong, pretty strong references to that fact. So it certainly is in that area because God told Abraham to go to, uh, to that area, to a mountain that I will show you in Moriah. And that certainly is where Jerusalem is in this, uh, in this part of Scripture. But 
He put the wood on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the knife and the fire. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? I don't know about you, but I could not think of a more gut-wrenching scenario for me to be asked by the Lord to sacrifice my son, either one of my children, my daughter, but it's the firstborn son in this, the son of the promise, to be asked to actually kill him. I mean, this was the, the, the centerpiece of the covenant, wasn't it? This was the centerpiece of the, of the promise, of the promise itself. This child was miraculously conceived. God several times said that the covenant will be fulfilled through this child. Not Ishmael, not another, this child. The son from whom God would provide descendants as numerous as the stars. By whom God would make Abraham into a nation, a great nation. And through whom God would bless all the nations. And here he is asking Abraham to sacrifice him on the altar. That would, I cannot think of a more gut-wrenching thing. And I, and I shudder to think of what my response would be. You know, I, I, could we actually do that if God commanded us to do so? I just can't, I can't get my head around that. But we know that Abraham did. He did. And because of that faith, which you know, God enabled Abraham to have faith, but because of that faith that he demonstrated, the covenant was renewed. The covenant was with him. The covenant was for him, through him, his descendants, to bless the world. And it's in these events of this week that we finally understand just how God intended all along to do that. Abraham obeyed without delay. Didn't hesitate, did he? The next morning, it says, he got up and went. Well, I think it would be fitting for us as we look at these stories, these three stories, and hold them up, really, as central to the gospel. These are the very centerpiece of the gospel that we proclaim. This is, in a nutshell, who we are as God's people, as God's covenant people. We are in covenant with Him because of these things, because of God's actions on our behalf. So from, from the outset, God's redemptive history is present in every story of the Bible, isn't it? Every story of the Bible. Like lifeblood coursing through the tiniest vein or vessel in a person's body, consistently present at the heart and the core of God's purposes. It's the redemption of man is the, the redemption of mankind saving the world, saving the world, those who believe in the world. Blessing the nations. 
blessing the nations. This is the thing that, that strikes me. I, I think as we, as we look at who we are, as we look at who we are as individual disciples in Jesus, as we look at who we are as a body of Christ, as a church, the thing that, that we really need to be focusing on is carrying on that promise that God made to Abraham that was fulfilled in Jesus to bless the nations. We are a blessing around us to those around us. We serve as a representation of God's grace and mercy into our communities around us. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, can it? My prayer is that we can't be hidden at all. That our love for our community, our love for people, our concern for the spiritual condition of those around us would just pour out of everything that we do. Everything that we do. There are a couple of books, I don't usually recommend books from the pulpit, but there's a couple of them that I really think are, are very worthy to read. One of them, I think most of you probably have read it already, Rosaria Butterfield, Secret Thoughts, Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, Rosaria Butterfield, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. The theme of that book is how we are a blessing to those that God has planted around us. And there's another one, Katie, I'm going to mention your name, Katie Babb, because I got this through you, but it's a great book. I got it, and I bought it, and I read it. It's called Finding the Right Heels to Die On, The Case for Theological Triage by Gavin Ortland. Gospel Coalition helped publish that, and there's a nice forward by D.A. Carson in there. That book gives us a, an idea of what hills must we die on theologically, biblically, to maintain our integrity in the Scriptures. And what hills are maybe not quite so important. Maybe we can find ways to interact and bless others, even if we don't agree completely 100% with them. There comes a time, there's, there's always a point for theological training. We need to understand our Bible. We need to understand what it says. We need to examine the Scriptures we need to be very strong and deep in our theology, but Lord, help us if we ever hold our theology and the knowledge that we have, that we fill our minds with, good knowledge, good things to learn, if that come, becomes more important than our love for the people around us that we're trying to reach for Christ. That has to take precedence without sacrificing the former. So, as we move into the Lord's Supper tonight, I'm going to pray in just a minute, but I think my prayer for us would just be simply this, that, that people would see us in this way. Blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for 
this opportunity that we have to be your church here in McKinney. Lord, I, uh, I thank you for the depth of love and knowledge and discipleship that, that you have blessed this congregation with. We have servants in our midst. And I praise you for these men and women that step up every Sunday and, and, and work to glorify you and, and bring our people into worship with you. Lord, may we never lose that sense of servanthood among one another. Lord, always remind us, Lord, that we need to be an outward-looking people, especially with this wonderful opportunity that you've given us to have property in a place that's going to be growing so fast in McKinney. May we be the witnesses that you intend for us to be in that place. And as we go, in Jesus' name, amen.